It had been my dream to do a podcast about Selena for years. I wanted there to be a record that really, really solidified her legacy and told us how she changed culture, how she changed music. And I wanted to use my craft as a storyteller to pay homage to this woman who left such a tremendous impact on my life. I wanted to write a love letter to her through serialized storytelling. So have you ever been so deeply affected by another person that their story literally gives your life context and meaning and even a sense of belonging? Now, what if that other person was someone you never actually met? And what if they'd been gone from the planet for more than 25 years, but still it was like they were present in your life, guiding and inspiring you every day? Well, that, it turns out, is the power of authenticity and agency and legacy. And in today's conversation with award-winning journalist and writer and producer, Maria Garcia, we dive deep into these topics in a very cool and unusual way through the lens of the life of the iconic performer, Selena Quintanilla, and the impact she had not just on Maria's life, but on tens of millions around the world, even decades after her tragic passing at a young age. And also not because Maria, or for that matter, any of those millions knew Selena personally, but because what she embodied profoundly affected and informed the way Maria and those millions saw themselves, their sense of wholeness, heritage, community, and the call to celebrate uniqueness and embrace life through a lens of possibility and joy. In the end, it's really a story about belonging, which we all need more of. So incredibly, in the 27 years since Selena's death, her legend has only grown. Her story has been told on large screens, small screens, countless interviews, and continues to make an imprint on media and culture and music that transcends generations and nationality. And still, Maria knew there was more to be told. She wanted to go deeper, to ask questions, explore issues, and talk to people that had remained in the shadows for decades, then tell their fuller story, the real story, in a way that allowed all of us to step into it and learn from it, and in no small way reconnect to ourselves and those around us. So Maria became the driving creative force and on-air host of the stunning podcast series, Anything for Selena, which was named Apple Podcast Show of the Year in 2021 and produced with Futuro Studios and NPR member station WBUR. And for the first time in her 15 plus years in journalism, she did something that broke one of the fundamental rules of reporting. She became a part of the story because as you'll learn, she realized she couldn't not. We talk about how this project became a calling and how and why she felt compelled to weave her own story into the bigger story of Selena's life and her powerful decision to center the universality of struggle and joy, expression, and the complexity of love, relationships, and power in the conversation. I was so deeply drawn in and moved by this body of work and was so excited to dive into Maria's life, the stories and experiences that led her into telling stories, shining lights, and championing ideas and ideals that mattered to her and her community. Maria opens up about all of the above, as well as the intimate process of the unique storytelling that took place in the creation of this podcast series and takes me through the before and aftermath of creating and launching anything for Selena, assessing the ways that it really transformed her and hopefully whoever is tuning in. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. 
hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert. This season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Where are you, by the way, now? Are you Texas, New York, somewhere else? I'm in El Paso. Yeah, I'm in Texas. I've been going back and forth between here and Boston for a couple of years, but I think I'm finally settling down here, making this my home base. I have mountains here and I have the desert and I have this very real connection with the land here. It's not even the city. It's not necessarily even people. It's like the land calls to me here, you know, and to be able to walk out of my front door and see the mountains in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico and see the mountains in El Paso. And it just feels like my body recognizes this place in a very visceral way. And and that keeps me here. Yeah, I, that resonates powerfully with me as well. I'm in Boulder, Colorado now after spending a life in a different type of mountains, like tall buildings in New York City. And uh, there's something so powerful that draws me in to just even if I'm not out hiking or walking around in the mountains, just knowing that I'm sort of being held close by them. Um, yes. There's something kind of powerful and magical about that. I, I don't know if everyone's affected that way, but I know I certainly am. It sounds like you are as well. I am. You know, I have this theory that people who are affected that way by mountains, you know, I have the same feeling as well. Like somehow things are okay because I'm close to this mountain, you know, like somehow this mountain is holding me and protecting me in some way. And it's just this feeling that I have. And I think it has to have been a feeling that has to have been passed down through the generations mm. by somebody else who maybe was literally protected by a mountain, you know, in a more um, evolutionary kind of way. And maybe it's just like an appreciation that is somehow epigenetically in me now. I'm not sure, mm. but I know there's something deep there for sure. Yeah, I know that totally resonates. Um, I often describe Boulder as sort of like, it's nestled right in the front range of the Rockies. And I often describe it as, you know, if you turned your palm upwards and then you took your fingers and you reached them up, it's like Boulder is the palm and the fingers that are reaching upward is sort of like the front range of the Rockies. And you're just being held you know, like in the middle of that. And it's that feeling that I get from being in this town. It sounds like you really resonate with that as well. It's interesting also, right? Because you, you, your incredible podcast series, which we'll dive into um, anything for Selena, it, it starts out not with a story like about a person, but it starts out with a moment that really taps into the land. It does. Yeah. You know, when I was thinking, how do I start this journey, this journey of not just discovery about Selena, but also self-discovery because to learn about Selena in a way is to learn about myself, 
because I have such a personal connection to her, like I think millions of Latinas and young women in this country do. And that connection to her, the foundation for that really starts with the place that I was raised in, which is on the U.S.-Mexico border. And like I said, I'm really drawn to this place because of the actual land. And I wanted to really convey that to the listeners that like this journey with Selena that we're about to go on, it comes from a very specific place. It comes from a very specific lens. I can't tell this story honestly without telling you the place that I'm coming from, without telling you the lens that I'm looking at it through. And that is completely shaped by growing up in this place, by growing up on the border. But beyond, you know, the man-made border and what El Paso and Ciudad Juarez are now, the land here is so special to me. And the way I'm connected to the land is through my five senses. And one of the most powerful one of those is my sense of smell. And this is what I mean when I say my body recognizes this place. I smell creosote bush, which is one of the oldest living organisms on the planet. It's this beautiful plant. Um, in my eyes, it's beautiful. <laughs> this beautiful sort of brush that grows in the desert that's been around for tens of thousands of years. And when it rains, it releases these chemicals, you know, um, and I say this in the podcast, it's other stuff found in nature, like citrus and rosemary. And it smells like nowhere else, you know, and I wanted to start off with that, showing people like this journey begins in a place, in a place that really shaped me. Yeah. It brought you into your senses also, which I thought was really cool and appreciated because it grounds you in a different way. I'm curious, growing up, you described how your family was on one side, but it was almost like, you know, like you were living these two lives. In fact, you, you use the phrase, um, I guess, translates roughly into English, neither from here nor there. It sounds like just regularly, every weekend, every weekend, moving back and forth between Juarez and El Paso. I'm curious about that phrase, neither from here nor there. Take me deeper into what that means and what, what it means for you in particular. You know, I've evolved a bit and I've come to realize that it's not it's not that I'm not from one place or another, but that in fact, I belong a little bit in both. But growing up, it was really confusing for me. The way El Paso and Ciudad Juarez is set up is they're these twin cities, both of them nestled by mountains in the same valley. And these two cities, their downtowns are connected. If you go into downtown El Paso, you can walk the border and, and be in downtown Ciudad Juarez and be in Mexico in a major Mexican city. And there's so many people, there's thousands of people who cross the border every single day. There are families that half of them are in El Paso, half of them are in Ciudad Juarez. My family was like that. I had cousins and aunts in Mexico. And of course, my parents lived in the States. They were new immigrants here. And so I was constantly crossing the border, sometimes a couple times a week. And I was going to school in the States and learning about American history in the States and pop music and sort of getting everything like a sort of standard American education in the States. But in Mexico, I was still very much holding on to my parents' culture and I was listening to cumbias and I was, you know, just absorbing my culture there still. And I grew up in a very Latino community, but this was in the 90s when assimilation was very, very, very praised. And so even though it was a largely Latino community, the assimilated kids and the white kids were sort of at the top of the school hierarchy. And there was a sort of shame in being explicitly Mexican. And I remember internalizing this shame you know, like one day in PE singing like one of the cumbias that I had been dancing on the weekend with my mom and my grandma in Ciudad Juarez and like kind of happily humming it 
during PE and one of my classmates coming up to me and being like, ew, are you singing Mexican music? And that was the vibe, you know? And so what happened is I began code switching at a very young age. I didn't have the vocabulary to know that that's what was happening. I didn't even quite have the understanding, but I I recognize now that that's what was going on is that from very early on, five, six, seven, eight years old, I was learning to be Mary in the States and Maria Elena in Ciudad Juarez and in Mexico. And these two parts of myself never really came together. And I talk about in the podcast how the border wasn't just, you know, a physical barrier, but it was also, you know, it was also something that divided me inside as well. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's so powerful. On the one hand, you, you describe how um, that affected you as a kid and you share you know, that you have a bit of a different lens, like rather than not really feeling like you're from here or there, you've come to a place where it sounds like you feel like you have a sense of of dual belonging almost like, but it does sound like as a kid, like, and look, this is every kid, right? All you want to do is fit in. you know, like, you want to feel like you're accepted by wherever you are. And for you, that had to have just been really interesting, sort of learning the skill of code switching, even if you didn't have the language or even the awareness that you were doing, it just became like this default behavior. I often wonder for folks who develop that as a way of being early in life, how that travels with you through life and how it sometimes benefits you, but also sometimes keeps parts of your identity from showing up that without us even realizing it, causing a certain amount of stifling or harm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it stayed with me for many, many years. I I code switched all of my life. You know, I did it in jobs. I did it when I went to my fancy grad school. And it wasn't until... I would say my late 20s, early 30s, that I started to realize it was like a skill that I kind of had to unlearn. You know, I had to tell little Maria that was deep inside of me, like, hey, you're safe now. It's okay. Like, it's okay to be yourself now. It's completely safe to be Mexican now in certain, in all settings that you want to be in. You don't have to camouflage yourself anymore to stay safe. And it's, it's a skill that I had to unlearn so that I can show up as authentically myself in more spaces. Mm, yeah. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new 
Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash project to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash project, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I'm curious also when you step out into the like your your early professional life in journalism, effectively storytelling, and again, a lot around politics, policy, and around border town issues. And that was a solid decade or so of your life. Did you see yourself as somebody who, as a, even as a kid, younger, was curious about, deeply interested in these local social issues? And also, I'm fascinated by the, the early decisions about how we step into a career, especially one that is driven so much by something that seems deeply rooted in a sense of wanting to shine light, wanting to tell stories, and to a certain extent, rooted in justice and, and the need to sort of like show what's really going on. Yeah, no, it definitely was. I wanted to tell the stories of my community. That's what drove me into journalism. It wasn't just telling stories, period, even though that's my passion. That's like the one thing that I know I'm really good at, that I know I love deep inside. It's like this this love for my craft, you know, that that really energizes me even still. And I remember when the light turned on, like my senior year in high school, when I was like, I could tell stories for a living and I could tell stories about like my community that, that blew my mind, you know, that I could build a career out of that. And look, growing up in a border city and just being like a casual consumer, both Mexican news and American news, I knew that the border was deeply misrepresented and that it was portrayed as just this sort of like dangerous, lawless place that had been extracted of culture, that it was sort of like narco land. And I grew up here. Like, I know that there's way more to this community than the like mainstream media and movies and shows portray. And I wanted to show like the full spectrum of humanity from this like vibrant place that I'm from. I wanted to show that it was more than just about immigration or narco trafficking or danger, but that in fact, like this is a community that has so much to show about you know, neighborly goodwill. This is such a safe place in part because it's a place of immigrants, you know, and I was really passionate about that. And that's why I stayed, you know, practicing journalism for for over 10 years here because I was so passionate about telling the stories of my community and I felt this huge responsibility. And I thought, if I leave, like, What's going to happen? Like, I, of course, there's other journalists who are also, you know, really passionate about telling the stories of the border. But I felt this intense, intense responsibility 
But what happened is, you know, I started off in commercial television. I grew up, you know, first generation in my family to go to college. And when it was time to pick a career, I thought of television journalism because it's the form that I had grown up with and sort of my working class home. You know, my parents saw the local news all the time and it's what I knew and it's what was familiar to me. And and it's what I thought, you know, could really make a difference in telling the true story of the border. But what happened is I, I grew out of the medium and I realized that I wanted to go deeper and I wanted you know, in in television, there's this phrase of sort of simplifying the story, like break it down to its most elemental form and tell it in the most simplest form. And I realized that deep inside of me, I was craving to do the opposite. And I wanted to complicate the story. And I wanted to look at the most complicated parts of a story. And I wanted to unpack those. And I was tired of simplifying I wanted to tell longer stories. I wanted to tell more complicated stories. I wanted to get into like the nitty gritty of stuff. And so I grew out of the television medium. And that's when I went to long form and arts and culture. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting shift to me. I I remember years ago, I've done media on and off over the years, like on the other side of the mic and being having one TV segment and, you know, the typical three to five minute interview. And and I could I could see the person interviewing me. This was in before times when we were in person in a studio in New York. And I could see her watching the teleprompter and just waiting for me to stop talking so she could ask the next question. And when it aired, our community, we got all these messages from people being angry actually at the interviewer. Like, you know, they were going past you. They were just like, and I was like, no, no, no. Like it, it's actually, it's completely fine. That's just, it, the nature of the medium is, it's short form, it's soundbite. It's just, that's what the container allows for. But so much of our community is used to in-depth conversations where we can go wherever it feels right to go and really explore the conversation and the issues. Um, It is, I think often we don't really think about the limitations of the channel itself and how that matches or doesn't match with the way that we're personally wired to like do the work that we're here to do. So it's so interesting to me that you had that realization and said that I literally need to shift to a different way. Like I love the the core of what I'm doing, but I can't do it in the channel or the medium in the way that I want to really make it happen. Yeah. I felt like my soul, like my soul was hungry for more. And I knew that I wanted to keep telling stories, but I knew I wanted more space to tell stories. And I knew that I I wanted to do the opposite of simplifying them. So that leads you, as as you shared, you end up going back to journalism school. And then from there, unless I'm missing a step, you end up in Boston. Mm-hmm. So you you make this move to, to public radio and, and one of the most iconic public radio stations that's been around for a long time where, you know, and public radio has this reputation of like, let's let's latch onto stories and actually go deeper. Let's go where we need to go. Not too long into that, you then decide, there's one particular story that has been told a million times, but not in a way that I feel like it needs to be told or it could be told. Take me there. <laughs> um, you know, it had been my dream to do a podcast about Selena for years. You know, I grew up consuming every Selena story out there. So you know, every year on the anniversary of her death and on the anniversary of the day she was born, there's a flurry of articles that touch on her legacy. But that's kind of what they do is they touch on it. And as a Selena fan all of my life, I wanted there to be a record that really, really solidified her legacy and told us how she changed culture, how she changed music, what her role was in the world. And I was just really hungry for that to exist. And I thought, well, maybe I could do it. And I I pitched the story for a couple of years before the folks at BUR were finally like, okay, I, I think you're ready for this. But I I wanted something, I wanted to use my craft 
as a storyteller to pay homage to this woman who left such a tremendous impact on my life. You know, I wanted to write a love letter to her through serialized storytelling. For those who don't know who we're talking about, um, when I think much of the world, when you literally just use that first name, Selena knows. But for those who don't, tell me a little bit more about who this person was. Oh, of course. Yeah. So Selena Quintanilla was a Tejano singer from Corpus Christi, Texas. Tejano is like roots music, Mexican-American roots music from Texas. And Selena grew up performing from when she was eight years old. Her family owned a restaurant in Corpus Christi, Texas, where her father would make her sing there. Um, Her family soon went bankrupt and lost the restaurant Then they went into music full time. And from the young age of like eight or nine years old, Selena, as a singer, became the breadwinner for her family. You know, her artistry was the family business. She was that talented as a little girl. And she was performing full time from the time she was like 12 years old, traveling all around Texas. She started when she was eight. She started getting a little, you know, like regionally known when she was 12 or 13. And by the time, you know, she was 15, 16, 17, she was like a star in the Southwest of the United States. She was the queen of Tejano music, of this roots genre in Texas and California and Northern Mexico and Arizona. So she was huge in sort of the Western and Southern part of the United States. And she was on the cusp in the mid nineties when she was in her early twenties. She was on the cusp of mainstream success. Uh, She was American, born in, like I said, Corpus Christi. So her first language was English, but she had sang in Spanish all of her career. But in her early 20s, she was finally ready to do an English album. And so she was like on the cusp of mainstream success. She won a Grammy for Best Mexican American Artist. She was traveling internationally, filling stadiums in Latin America and in major cities in the US, including New York. She even performed in Boston. Like she was, you know, she was just right on the cusp of major, major stardom. She was already a big star in my world, but she was about to become a big star in everyone's world. And then in 1995, the president of her fan club was caught stealing money from Selena. Selena's manager father confronted the woman. And a few weeks later, the woman shot and killed Selena. And it was huge, huge news. It was kind of like the Kennedy assassination for Latinos. It was a massive news event. It was the very first time in my life that I saw the same news headline in like an English national network and a Mexican national network. I had never seen anything like that in my whole life. And ever since her death, she's become this sort of mythological symbol for Latino identity. Her biopic came out in 1997, starring Jennifer Lopez, which kickstarted JLo's career. And Selena, you know, it's been a quarter of a century plus later. Um, Her legacy is still as alive today as it is, as it was then. You know, Netflix did a series on her life and, um, Yeah. She wasn't just a pop star. She was somebody who I think the first form of authentic representation for a lot of Latino women in the 90s. So it's about 20, 26 years now, um, 27. And given in that intervening window, like you shared, this was not somebody who was this incredible star. And then when she died was, you know, like a couple of years later, people just kind of moved on. If anything, her legend has grown and grown and grown for all the reasons that you shared. 
And there's been a lot of attention. A lot of people have tried to tell a story and a lot of people have told pieces of the story. And a lot of people have told it the way that they wanted it told. So I'm always curious when you step into this and you're sort of rising in your career at this point, you're established, you've got a lot of chops and you've got a history and a body of work behind you. And you latch onto this story and you say like, it's been 25 years. So many people have told pieces of this story and there are millions of people who are holding on to their own way of telling the story and they keep it alive. And you think to yourself, like, how do I not only tell the story in a way that's different and fuller, but also honor the way that millions of people want to remember the story as they like, because in their mind, they have the narrative. It had to have been such an interesting moment for you to figure out, like, how do I do this in a way which is truly different? And at the same time, honors not only her legacy, her family, but also the millions of people who still hold her almost like as a sacred being. And you're stepping into this saying, I've got something that I can add to the conversation. You know, I think that's when this idea of the role of a journalist and how much a journalist, you know, inserts themselves in a story in an authentic way, in a way that's necessary to the story. Um, I think that's where this conversation really comes in because I am one of those millions of people who see her as a, like a sacred symbol. You know, I am genuinely a fan. I love her, you know, in a very real, visceral way. It was hard for me to talk about Yolanda Saldivar, her killer, because anytime she comes up, I get this sort of like, anger deep inside of me, you know, and I just like want to take off my hoops, you know, like I, it's real, like me as a person, I am defined by so many things. And one of them is my love for Selena. And so I knew that I couldn't separate Maria, lover of Selena with Maria, the journalist. There is no such thing. Just like I I was learning not to separate sort of Mexican Maria from American Maria. You know, like Maria as a journalist is completely informed by Maria as Selena fan. And I had to be honest with my audience from the beginning and let them know, like, the person who is telling you this story, this is not a detached narrator. This is somebody who's coming from a very personal place. And that's why I started the podcast with the creosote bush, you know, because I wanted to start with something like viscerally personal. And so I knew that was the first step in getting it right, is just being honest with the audience and being honest with myself. That's why in episode two, when I talk about Selena's dad and my own dad, you know, I came to realize like when I was writing the episode, I couldn't separate myself as a person from my role as a journalist here. And I had to sort of clean with the listeners. And I think that place of honesty and vulnerability and saying like, you know, in order for me to tell this story, honestly, I got to show you these, these sort of parts of myself that are scary for me to show you, but I got to show them to you because you got to know where I'm coming from. In order for you to understand how much I love Selena and why I love Selena, then you kind of got to understand me a little bit. And I think a lot of people, you know, just based on what I've heard and the kind of feedback I received, I think a lot of people saw their own story in mine. You know, I think the people who see her as a sacred symbol and who love her were able to identify with my own story. And I think that was sort of my guiding principle is transparency, you know, radical transparency from me to the audience. You know, it was powerful because it wasn't just transparency and saying like, well, I want you to know where I'm coming from so you can understand like why. I'm framing these things and why I'm asking these questions. But it was also you, you effectively saying, like, I'm a character in this story. And whether that was the original intention or not, that's what you know, like the fuller narrative of this entire series becomes. It's like, it's not just 
the story of this one incredible woman and like her immediate family and fans. It's also it's your personal story. Like you just described that that second episode where you know you're talking about the role of her dad, you know, who's this character who's been painted in a lot of different ways in a very public way and and describing it, you know, like your ability to actually have a sit down with him when he basically said no, everybody for years and years and years and and how that led to a conversation that really to a certain extent won him over, but also how it brought it brings up your relationship with your own father. And then you walk through, you know, like this how you felt and how it was really moving you emotionally. And part of part of the the color and the texture of the conversation really walks people through your deeply emotional experience of your relationship and sometimes struggles with your dad um, before he passes. So you become a character in the story. And I'm so curious about this because the Coming from that background as a journalist, where it's sort of like drummed into you in journalism, like you are right. not the story. Like your job is to be as right. like unbiased, down the middle as you possibly can be. And then you're working in a very well-established public radio station like that, you know, like boasts its journalism. And, and you're making this story, like these decisions constantly say, first, I'm going to share that like, this is my lens and it's informed by all this, but, but also in doing so. I'm becoming a part of this story. So you're telling your personal story too. I'm so curious, sort of like how you're experiencing your insertion into this and trying to navigate, like, where is the line where like, I'm doing justice to myself, I'm doing justice to the story. And I'm also like, I'm honoring almost like all parties at once. It had to have been such a a really delicate and sometimes challenging Lake experience to trying to figure out because I imagine that line was moving all over the place all the time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think this is a bigger conversation that's being had in journalism about, you know, how much of themselves does the journalist reveal in a story? You know, how much of themselves do they bring? How much do they own their lens? You know, and it's this debate over objectivity, you know, versus transparency. You know, when we started conceptualizing the series, I knew that ethically, just ethically as a journalist, I had to disclose where I was coming from, you know, that I loved Selena, that this was not an unbiased account of her legacy. You know, my bias is like with Selena, you know? And so I knew ethically I had to disclose that and that that had to be part of the narrative. I didn't expect to be a character in the story until we started getting into the editorial conversations and I started sharing with my editors sort of like my my feelings around episodes and why they meant so much to me and I had editors who told me like you know I think I think you have to share this you know I think this is part of the the story and by the time I did Selena my feeling around how much a journalist inserts themselves or not had really evolved from coming from, you know, commercial television where it's like, it falls prey to the both sides isms, you know, the, especially because it's so, like you said, constrained by like the form and the time limits. So I think journalists are really like, they're taught to give equal airtime to differing positions and to sort of stay in the middle. And by the time I did Selena, my feelings around that had really evolved. You know, I had taken some time to think about journalism without practicing it. You know, like I had taken like a year when I did, when I did my master's to just think deeply and contemplate the role of a journalist um, instead of constantly being a, on deadline and being like a, an everyday practitioner of it. So I had, I had some time to sort of think through these big ideas and I had to come to the conclusion, you know, that much of what we think of as unbiased journalism, in fact, it's sort of dis objectivity is often disguised, you know, as um, a white 
male perspective or a perspective that's that often comes from the position of being white and male in this country and i had come to realize that i craved more radical transparency in journalism and not the sort of faux notion of objectivity now i do want to say in this conversation that it's very important to point out that I'm a big believer in like solid reporting. Like there is something about, about like the objectivity of your process, you know, your process has to be rigorous and sound and you have to be able to sort of show that your process is that. But I, by the time I did Selena, I had editors who really held my story with a lot of compassion and, love and trust. And when I put myself too much in the story to the point where it wasn't relevant, what edited me down and say, we don't really need that. Or when I wasn't being fully present and they would say, you know what? We really, we miss you here. We think that your perspective really enhances the storytelling here or really contextualizes the story, really adds to the narrative. Um, and so having editors with that sharpness who are able to bring you back or edit you out when necessary, always in service of the story, really made a huge difference. You know, editors who are able to hold your story with gentleness and love, but still be incisive about when you're necessary in the story and when you're not. To have that team to have people with that perspective and that history and that experience to be able to work together and reflect back to you. Um, I have to imagine that's so important in the process because at some point, you know, the more we get into something like this, I think the harder it is to be objective. It's almost like, you know, a dear friend of mine always says, you can't read the label from inside the jar. And it's like when you, the deeper you get into a story, especially one that you are just deeply invested in from a heart and mind and soul level, you know, I think it's so important to have those folks around you yes. to help reflect back and ask the hard questions. Um, and then it's also examining what is their lens? Like what's their standard? And do I trust that that standard represents the way that I want to bring myself forward and the way that like I want this story to be brought forward? So there's a lot of layers there and there's a lot of trust. There's so much, I have to imagine like there are moments where you're just like, there are certain, like, I need to, I need to trust and rely on and open to like the point of view of other people. And I'm curious whether there were moments where you had folks saying like, this is what it really needs to be, but there was something in your gut that was saying, no. That's a good question. Um, so first of all, just to give you some, some context, I'm sure you know this with long form editing of podcasts group edits are pretty common. So, you know, you'll have a group of people who come together and you'll read, you'll have essentially a table read of the script where you play the sound and you read the narrations. And it's an incredibly vulnerable position to be in (laughs) when you have a group of people, you know, workshopping your work in real time, you know, and you're there reading it. Um, I remember there were there were moments where I believe in in collaborative editing in journalism like I I think that it's the collective brain trust that often makes the project sharper like I love people um I love the synergy that happens in a group edit I love hearing perspectives that I didn't consider I love that you know because part of owning your lens is also owning what you don't know, you know, Mm. and the sides of the story that you can't see from the position in the world that you occupy and hearing that from other people. I love that. But there were moments, for example, that were really important to me where I pushed back. One of them was at the beginning, there were some 
some folks who thought we spent too much time on the creosote. (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, you know, this is a really nice intro, but I think people are going to start wondering, like, where's this podcast going? Can we shorten this down? It was so important to me to stay with the land and connect with that from the beginning. And that was a moment where there were few of these moments, but that was a moment where as a creator, I put my foot down and I said, no, we're staying with the creosote. Like we're going to trust that our audience is on this ride with us. We're going to trust that they're smart enough to know that this is like a poetic beginning to a story and that they're going to ride this ride with us. And yeah, there were editorial decisions like that all the time where ultimately like you want to be humble enough to listen to the opinions of others and you know change your mind when necessary but ultimately you also got to have to you have to follow your gut you know and there were moments where i definitely did follow my gut and not take some advice from my editors it's a balancing act but what an amazing experience to be able to do that Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So Selena's story, and again, your story is woven into this, but it's also, there are these much larger narratives that you're exploring along the way, almost like using her story and your story as these launching points, like not the least of which is how her story and then the various representations of her in the media after her death even really teed up the question of like, what is beauty in Western culture and who gets to decide and who may be harmed or erased or not recognized along the way. So these are like really big and important conversations 
that you tee up in a very, like you center these conversations. It's not like, oh, let's just mention this on the side, but you're like, no, let's actually dedicate a substantial amount of conversation to these because they matter. And this is sort of like, it was interesting to see, it was almost like you were giving people a different entry point into an important issue and teeing it up in a way which was potentially inviting more people into it and inviting them into looking at it differently. Yeah. I mean, I think the episode you're alluding to is episode four, which is called Big Butt Politics. It's an episode about the impact that the way that Selena owned her voluptuous body and celebrated it, the way that impacted culture. And when we were imagining the series, I knew right away, this is, this was one of the episodes that I immediately knew. I said, we have to do an episode about the way her body type was treated in society and the way that she celebrated her body and what that did for the culture, because I saw it in my lifetime. Like I saw the change, you know, when I was growing up, crossing the border all the time, you know, having parties with my big Mexican family in Mexico and hanging out with my American friends in the States during the week, you know, there was this big difference in the way voluptuous bodies were treated in different contexts. You know, in Mexico and with my family, my Mexican family, curves and big butts were celebrated and and coveted and everybody wanted one. Um, Like with my white friends, big butts were sort of derided and like their moms would exercise to get rid of their butts. And like it was it was like not a desirable body part to have. And I remember noticing this when I was young and how odd it was that like this feature can elicit these very oppositional reactions in different cultures. And then Selena comes along. She wore these tight, tight cat suits, you know, and she celebrated her curves and she owned them and she didn't try to hide them. On the contrary, she sort of highlighted them. You know, I'm not saying that Selena was sort of this bastion of body positivity because she was, you know, like a thin woman with big curves. But what I am saying is that I do think that it mattered that here was this brown woman who celebrated her curves. And it mattered a lot for Mexican-American and Latina girls like me who were getting mixed messages about whether these features that we had were desirable or not. And here was this American pop star who unequivocally said, they're beautiful and um, they're worth celebrating. And then, of course, J-Lo comes along in 1997 and plays Selena and takes that conversation to a whole new level. You remember this, I'm sure, in like 97, 98, mainstream media, every magazine, every television show, every late night show was talking about J-Lo's body. And she was talking a lot about her butt. And then suddenly I saw this change in the mainstream culture where big butts were formerly you know, looked down upon, seen as not desirable. And I saw this shift in the wider culture. And suddenly this feature was praised and was desirable in the mainstream. And then of course, there's been this huge evolution since then, you know, from JLo to now, you know, of course, Kim Kardashian and beyond. But really, that was sort of the spark that led to this wider change in the mainstream culture. And what I realized that investigating this episode is it comes down to, you know, Jayla wasn't the first person, of course, to have this body type, not even the first famous person to show off her curves. Black women had been doing it for a very long time, but they didn't receive 
the attention and the praise that JLo did. And I wanted to investigate why. And, and I realized that the story wasn't just about like, oh, mainstream beauty ideals changed because Selena had a big butt and JLo played her. And then JLo ushered in this revolution of big butts. And that's the story. No, there's more to it because I say this in the podcast, like it doesn't start there. This has a deep, deep history of anti-Blackness and the way that Latino identity that the, the relationship it has with blackness. And so, yeah, that's what we dug deep in the episode. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting to see you basically dedicate an entire episode to this conversation. Cause I was, I was imagining a fairly limited run of episodes. And when you're trying to figure out, okay, so what are the pieces of the story you want to tell? And then what are the larger social issues that we really need to dive into and saying, this is worthy. Like, this is something which is which is so pervasive in the culture. And then you saying as, as a journalist, what if we dive into this on a deep level and really try and understand what's happening here? Like what changed and why? And, and who are we leaving behind or who are we erasing? Or like, is there harm being caused by this beyond just, oh, there's like this evolution of, of the way that we see beauty based on celebrity culture, um, which is certainly part of that story. So I, I, was, I was curious about, you know, like what was happening behind that, that led to say, okay, so let's dive into this conversation. You know, you move through the story and you cover so many different topics in such a, a beautiful, powerful story-driven way that is expansive, that literally just invites millions of people in. In fact, millions of people did get invited in and and share in this story. And I thought there was a really interesting moment also at the very end, you added in a couple of bonus episodes. One of them being a couple months later, it sounds like circling back and saying, you know, Selena was actually married and the story of like <laughs> what led to that and the like, like fierce resistance from her dad, you know, like you tell really powerfully in the podcast, but her husband, Chris, you know, like it was 26 years and nobody really talked to him during this whole window of time. And you, you got curious about him and you went and found him and were able to arrange a sit down with him. You know, like, and this was in the middle of the pandemic at this point. So like, there's an outdoor sit down that happens with you and him and Joshua Tree, where you really sort of like dive into his life and like, what's, what have things been like for him? And also what was his lens on what life was like um, with Selena along the way? And he becomes really vulnerable and open in a way that sounds like you weren't expecting. And that also he's reflecting on struggles that he had in his relationship post Selena and how it, how it ended that also happened to resonate with you and the ending of your own relationship. And again, you brought everything to the microphone in a really powerful way. And I was curious why, what was underneath you feeling like we need to have this end cap to the story that we're telling. Yeah. You know, I haven't been able to go back and listen to that bonus episode because it captures such a delicate time in my life. It was it was a moment where I was trying to rebuild my life after my relationship of seven years had come to an end. Um, and I was trying to figure out how to establish like a healthy co-parenting relationship with the father of my son after I think he and I had inflicted some trauma on each other. And, um, and it was just like a really trying time. And here was the universe giving me this opportunity to speak to Chris Bettis about his own marriage to Selena and relationships and love and heartbreak and recovering from those and rising up after heartbreak. And, you know, honestly, I, I was in kind of a haze when I wrote that, you know, I was, especially as a mom, you know, and I think that comes out in, in the episode a bit the idea of handing off my son on a holiday or 
you know, every other weekend was like brand new to me. You know, it was like brand new to me. Like, oh my God, are you, I'm not going to be with this little human all the time. Like I'm going to have to share him, you know, and it was, it was really, really just such an adjustment and it was really hard. And, you know, now I guess what's it been two years since, like, I, I feel so settled and so at ease in my motherhood and in, you know, in the direction of my life. And I, I have done some of that rebuilding, but at that moment, it felt so raw. Just like when I met her father, I couldn't help but think of mine when I was talking to her husband about relationships, you know, it was really hard to sort of separate what was going on in my life. And yeah, I think that comes through in the episode. Yeah, no, it definitely does in a powerful way. Um, There was this one line that you shared in it um, that stayed with me where you say, despite the pain of ending a relationship, it feels like I'm reconciling a relationship with myself. Yeah. And I just felt like that last part of it, how many of us walk through life feeling like we're perpetually in the process of reconciling a relationship with ourselves. And like what a universal experience it that is, regardless of whatever the trauma or just process of inquiry and awakening therapy, whatever it may be that leads to that. Um, and I thought it was really powerful and vulnerable that you kind of like said, we're putting this to air. Because what I felt like you were also doing was inviting people in and saying, you're not alone. We all go through moments and I'm going through one right now. And it's actually okay to not just keep it to yourself, to like be with other beings and people as you walk that path. Uh, I thought it was really, it was moving and powerful. And, and, and I thought a, a really um, a beautiful end cap to the way that you shared the entire story. Um, and that feels like a good place also for us to come full circle in our conversation, which I've enjoyed so much. So in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To live a good life, embrace imperfection, embrace imperfection. Don't stop yourself from doing something because it's not going to be perfect. Embrace the wrinkles and do it anyway. Mm, thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you will also love the conversation we had with Samin Nosrat about food and belonging, culture, and connection. You'll find a link to Samin's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it? Maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person. Just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen. Then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project.